Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. Hello, I'm Ben Mitchell, raspy-voiced rapscallion. How are you, Ben? I'm uh, I'm working my way through the latter stages of a uh, uh, disease. It's been a rough few weeks. I'm poorly, Steve. Yeah, yeah. My immune system. It's taken a beating. We, you did sound quite gravelly on uh, on the on the recent uh, extended interview you did with uh, Sidney Bowman, and uh, yeah, some might say quite um, quite sexy. If only I could actually talk like that ordinarily. Unfortunately, it's not a voice I can put on. I, I'll just clarify. I didn't. I don't find that sort of voice sexy. I I do like a, a different cadence in uh, people I'm sexually attracted to. So you like the way my voice sounds now. Better. Oh yeah, good, clever. Well, that makes me feel a little better. Speaking of which, I mean that's a, a something to check out if you haven't. Uh, the interview we did with Sydney Bauman on the last podcast. There's an extended version of it online uh, on squiggly.co.uk, where we talk about a lot of uh, other stuff that she's been up to in the past, uh, as well as the uh, film that she was raising funds for. Now at the end of its campaign, successfully, which is nice. I think. Uh, we can come away from that feeling like we helped in some small way. Yeah. So, yes, congratulations to Signy. It's been quite a busy month across the board as far as animation goes, has it not, Stephen? Yeah, it certainly has. Um, well, we've got part two of, uh, speaking of busy, one of the busiest men in the industry, part two of the Bill Plimpton. Uh, so he talks a little bit more about what he's, uh, what he's been working on recently uh, and uh, another successful Kickstarter campaign fully funded. My God, we're like King Midas. Everything we touch turns to gold, Stephen. Yeah. Whew, okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's late. <laughs> what are you on at f***ing 10 past 11 at night? <laughs> well, uh, we've since seen the uh, BAFTA results. Ah, talking of gold. Yes, good to see deserved work getting accoladed. I believe it was uh, Brave and uh, Longbird. Yeah, The Making of Longbird by Will Anderson. Also, nice to see uh, Brenda Chapman get up to accept the award for Brave, which is something that people got quite concerned about at the uh, at the Golden Globes when it was just the director, Mark Andrew, um, who took over from Brenda Chapman about a year away from the uh, the deadline. A few questions raised there, but yeah, nice to, see, uh, nice to see them both get up and collect the award. Credit where credit's due. Exactly. Go congratulations to both of them. Let's see how it fares at the Oscars. Yeah. On that note, one of the Oscar nominees for short films, the, uh, oh, well, I won't use the phrase underdog because that's not really accurate, but, um, I think there were some films that were considered more like surefire. And then, uh, in the case of, uh, Mr. Tim Reckart, his was an NFTS student film, which, uh, I think, you know, we were both kind of rooting for. And, uh, that's gotten through to the short list. And we have an interview with him. On our main page, go to squiggly.co.uk for that as well. Very interesting guy. A lot of information about how the film came together, how he approached the story. If you haven't seen the film yet, it's online for, uh, I suspect not much longer. It'll probably be pulled offline again until I guess him or the NFTS decides to put the full thing up again, possibly in a year or so, or I don't know what their time frame is, but, uh, catch it while you can is what I'll say. It's a lovely, very thoughtful, very interesting, um, well put together stop motion film. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, good luck to him. I mean, you know, he's already an Oscar nominee. That's something that he will have forever. 
So a uh, pretty strong start. I do like this time of year. It's a relatively new pattern that these animations are, are becoming available online. Uh, the Oscar noms are becoming available, you know, for people to enjoy before the Oscars. Paperman's available online to watch. Adam and Dog is now available. Pez has been available for quite a while. I think the only thing that's not available uh, is the Maggie Simpson film, officially. I think we've got the majority of them up on Squiggly, so if you just check on the website, uh, you can uh, follow the links and find uh, find out more and watch Adam and Dog, Paperman, Head Over Heels, and the rest of what's available. My word. The bases we cover, Stephen. The bases we cover. So, yes. Animation, it's still happening, <laughs> I guess is the uh, summation. As always, we've got lots of mini features, reviews, spotlights, Q&As uh, on squiggly.co.uk. Check it out. Give yourself something to, to read over your lunch break, because our lovely contributors uh, do a fine job bringing the animation uh, world to you, rather than have you go to it, because that's face facts. Who has the time for that? Not me. Too busy editing a magazine. <laughs> Dying. We, we, we better rush on with this podcast before Ben dies. So what have we got on the podcast, Ben? So yes, more from Bill Plimpton coming up very shortly. We also have a chat with a number of the very talented animators and directors involved with the Graham Chapman biopic, A Liar's Autobiography, which is a very interesting a typical and ambitious animated translation of his semi-fictional uh, book of the same name. And we'll be talking with them about how that project came together. If you haven't heard of it yet, it's worth checking out. It's, uh, I suspect, a bit of a game changer as far as the future of uh, independent feature production goes. Fingers crossed. Indeed, indeed. All that and the usual uh, whiffle and chitter-chatter that you come to expect from the Squiggly Podcast. The bits that you quite easy to skip past because you can tell by the shape of the waveform in the little window. <laughs> I'm helping. Don't give them tips, Ben. We want to carry favour with our audience. They're not even listening to this bit, Ben. Now they know how to skip forward, we can say anything. I am naked right now. So in our last podcast, you got to speak to one of my heroes, one of your heroes, Mr. Bill Plimpton, the king of uh, indie animation yes a hero all around um really good to catch up with him really good to see what he's been up to check in on the development of Cheetan, the feature film which uh reached its kickstarter goal very shortly after we spoke now that may be a, a coincidence it may be because of our effect on the local animation community probably just coincidence Probably, really, let's be honest, more that, you know, he has a very solid reputation behind him and he was always going to reach the goal. Don't I, don't be so harsh on our sales technique, Ben. You know, Signe Bauman, the other Kickstarter from the last episode, she reached her goal as well. The great thing, I think, about being able to interview the two of them around the same time or sort of having them coming to the sort of post-production latter stages of their film at around the same time is... Uh, identifying that sort of correlation between two independent filmmakers, one of whom having been established for quite a bit longer, and um, seeing someone who takes inspiration from someone that you and I take inspiration from follow through on a project of their own, that in and of itself is quite inspiring. Yeah. If you, if, there's inspiration up the yin-yang <laughs> with this podcast. My word. 
No, it's really great to see them both succeed, to see them both have their vision realized or uh, have the, the realization assisted by their audience. And I feel, you know, it's, it's a great thing about the nature of independent filmmaking now is seeing how people support each other. So Bill Plimpton's Kickstarter came to an end. I believe they reached their stretch goal as well, which will uh, make it all the more pretty, which will, I think, give it more of a reach. Hopefully, maybe even have it out and about sooner than originally intended. I can't wait to see the film. I think there are a lot of people are highly anticipating this film. I, the impression I get and the overall vibe I get is that it's, it's going to be, well, not a make or break film because he's already made and broken at, at this point in his career, but I think it, it could be if there's going to be a film that really puts him on the map and perhaps even puts him in a sort of mainstream category, this seems to be the one that would do it. But we won't know, of course, until it's out there. But yes, and uh, very interested to see how it pans out. Of course, he never sits around and rests on his laurels. He's a guy who just is constantly making stuff, constantly working on creative ideas and, and projects and commissions. And uh, so, you know, there was plenty of discussion left over when we were sort of done talking about Kickstarter and cheating, just about all the stuff he's been working on since my first interview with him. Mm -hmm. May 2011, I think it was. Yeah, I mean, he's done more stuff in that period of time than, you know, a lot of animation practitioners do in, in five years or more. He's got quite the envious CV, hasn't he? When you've got the likes of, you know, a music video for Weird Al Yankovic, Kanye West. He's worked on The Simpsons doing an opening title. I mean, you know, it's, it's big names, and yet he, he remains independent. He remains a guy with this incredible work ethic that Signe Bauman said in her interview with you last time. You know, this guy comes home from a festival and just gets straight to work. You know, he doesn't even bother putting the washing in. He just, just carries on making the next feature or the next, the next short film that he's uh, preparing for. That's an incredibly admirable ethic. It's rare, and I think it's... I'm not even sure if, if it goes into the realm of ethics. I think it's more... I dare say perhaps a little bit compulsive, which is fantastic, you know, if you have that compulsion. I mean, most people's compulsions when they get in at the end of the day is to play Xbox or look at their navel. But if your impulse, you know, at the end of a, a long days or a long weekends, touring or festivaling or speaking or animating or whatever is to then do a bunch more animation, make a bunch more films until, you know, you're, you're ready to lose consciousness. What a great impulse to be beholden to. Because that's a life you can look back on and, and, and say to yourself, wow, I did not waste much time, you know? Mm -hmm. So good for him. I hope it, uh, long may it continue. If, you know, people like you or I can achieve a fraction of, of what he's able to achieve in, you know, a certain period of time, you know, I feel like I can still sort of look back on that and think, wow, I've done quite a lot. Even though comparatively speaking, it's, it's you know, way less. It just sort of goes to show there is time in the day. You know, that's the big gripe of people. Like, where does the time go? Where's the, you know, who has that commitment? Well, this guy does. Yeah. And uh, it's in all of us. You just got to find it. Not necessarily in me to, to nearly the same degree, but I certainly appreciate that proclivity of, of staying active, constantly, you know, working on things and trying as hard as I can to follow through with them when finances and, and work commitments will allow. So without further ado, here's part two of Ben's interview with Bill Plimpton. I was, I'm quite a sort of enamored of your design style in general, and I, I 
really like the character design approach with this film. It's it's mm-hmm. it's not a completely new direction, but in a sense, it's distinct from your other work. There's a little more, for lack of a better word, cartoony. And I think like the real solid knowledge of anatomy behind your character design yeah. has yeah. been really sort of consistent. And it's something that my um, father instilled in me when I was very young was the importance of life drawing and a sort of anatomical awareness and that kind of thing. But I found depressingly that a lot of animators and illustrators don't really like to do that. They, they're kind of not into life drawing or they find it too much of a challenge. And uh, I was perhaps hoping for the benefit of those people. Uh, you could talk a little bit about how important you found it to your work. Yeah, that's a really wonderful comment. I'm glad you brought that up because um, for me, life drawing is, is the key. Uh, I still go to life drawing classes. I like to experiment with different um, different techniques, different looks, different styles when I go to life drawing. And this film, I, I really wanted to try a different direction. I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, I don't know if you, in England, if you know this artist, he's an American artist named Thomas Hart Benton. Mm-hmm. And he would take uh, shapes, although they're na- anatomically correct, he would really stretch them and kind of play with them and, and almost turn them into um, organic shapes. And so it's, it's, it's even though it's, it's realistic, it's, it's very twisted and, and, and exaggerated and stylized. And if you look at some of his work, you can definitely see that I, I saw a lot of his, uh, a lot of his paintings. I did these drawings. Also, another uh, person who I'm sure you're aware of is N.C. Wyeth, who is uh, one of the great, great illustrators of early 20th century America. And uh, he's another person who who uses shapes and design uh, elements uh, very powerfully in his illustrations. And since I don't have the, um, the time or the manpower to do very complicated backgrounds and very detailed art, I use a lot of shadows and I use a lot of uh, textures to portray the story where I don't, I don't have the time to do a lot of detailed backgrounds. I look at um, a lot of the Miyazaki stuff and you see those backgrounds. I mean, they're huge murals with so much detail and so much definition. I mean, it looks like they spent a month on every background. Some artists spent a month on the background. I just don't have that kind of time. So I like to simplify it and, and keep it very simple and keep the eye going to where I want the eye to look. Uh, whether it's someone's hair or someone's hand or a gun or a, a sexual part of the anatomy, I, I focus on that. And the rest of it is a little bit out of focus, a little bit blurry, a little bit uh, flat. And that's how I'm able to um, finish these films as fast as I can uh, because I, 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 uh, I don't want to get carried away with detail and patterns and, and shapes. And, or I love shapes, but, uh, you know, background uh, background detail I just don't have the time sorry to key off here on the on this uh, topic but it's a really important part of my success is uh, keeping the detail to a minimum and using uh, the the focus of the eye leading the eye around uh, to certain parts of the anatomy as uh, my storytelling uh, trick excellent that's that's fantastic Tell your fans to check out Thomas Hart Benton. He's really a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, artist, and you'll see the, the similarities between his work and my work a lot. Excellent. Cool. So as well as cheating, you've been incredibly busy as ever, and since I talked to you last one, particularly uh, a bold endeavor was the restoring of the Windsor Mackay short, uh, yes. The Flying House. 
And uh, what brought about the decision to take that on? Well, that was a crazy uh, idea. I don't know why I thought of that. I, I think I'd just seen uh, one of his films, and I just marveled how beautiful it was. It probably was something like uh, The Pet or uh, Sick in Lusitania, and just uh, amazed at the brilliance of the art yet at the same time saddened because he was sort of this obscure artist. He's been forgotten. I mean, his films are uh, 100 years old. I think the first film, Little Nemo, was 1912 it was made, somewhere around there. So it's over 100 years old. And uh, saddened that uh, his films weren't more, more well-known. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, the reason why is because they're black and white. There's no sound. The image is scratchy and grainy and deteriorating, and uh, there's no music, and uh, there's inner titles and, and word balloons. So I took it upon myself to uh, to update the films, and I chose The Flying House, which is one of his more obscure films. And uh, I got the uh, uh, a beta master from, um, or digital master, I'm sorry, from uh, Serge Bromberg, the guy who uh, used to run the uh, Annecy Film Festival, was a friend of mine. And we uh, laboriously uh, cleaned every frame and put sound on it. I had Matthew Modine and Patricia Clarkson redo the voices and um, uh, to put sound effects on it and, and a beautiful color and, and got rid of all the inner titles and word balloons. And now what used to be a 13 minute film which is very dirty and scratchy and hard to watch is an eight minute film which is uh, basically all the animation is there I didn't cut out any animation the whole story is there and that's a lot more um, commercial a lot more watchable film and that was my goal was to make Winsor McKay more more well known to younger artists or people who love animation that this guy was the guy that started it all he influenced uh, Disney immensely he was a huge influence on so many people and uh, you know I did it as sort of a um, a gift uh, I, I lost money on the deal I thought no one's gonna you know it's not gonna be a big hit it's not gonna be a big popular film but I found out we sold a lot of copies uh, to video stores and it's doing pretty well actually I, I haven't made my money back we're actually uh, uh, getting some good audience response and, and getting a lot of feedback so I think it's working my idea of getting his films out there has been working excellent and to restore it and keep preserve like all the animation would you have had to have essentially kind of taken it apart and recomposited it or? that's exactly what we did we found a background that was as clean as possible each shot had four four or five seconds we found a background image that was fairly clean and we kept that background and then colored it and cleaned that that up and then the uh, the moving characters we separated those and then each of those moving characters had to be cleaned uh, digitally and then colored uh, digitally so uh, that's how we did it and we found that that's uh, I forget she was um, Liliana was listening to somebody else who's done oh I think it was Serge Bromberg who restored um, the trip to the moon Mm-hmm. And no, it wasn't that. It was something else that they they had used the same technique, and we just discovered it on our own. So it's, uh, great minds think alike. Hmm. When you talk about his sort of influence on the animation scene, did you find to yourself he was quite a big influence, Winsor McKay? Oh yeah, I, I, I have a lot of parallels between Winsor McKay and myself, and I didn't discover him till college. Uh, no, no, that's not true. I remember. 
seeing Gertie the Dinosaur when I was a kid. They had that on TV. I didn't know that it was Windsor McKay. I just thought it was a very funny film. But uh, he, uh, like me, started in illustration and uh, loved, just loved animation and, and became an animator. He did all the drawings himself. He financed the films himself. Uh, oftentimes he self-distributed the films himself. Uh, his films were very um, humorous, uh, very surreal, very uh, uh, wacky. And so I find a lot of parallels between his, his work and my own. And I, I, I'd like to say that he's, he's one of the greatest draftsmen ever lived. I think he's the greatest animator that ever lived. And I like to consider myself a good draftsman too. I, I think drawing uh, the human form uh, drawing it well is a is a very rare talent, and I think he was the best, the best at that. As well as your uh, art and illustration collections, you've had a couple of written books out in the last few years, um, independently animated, and uh, which was a really well put together look at your career up to that yeah. point. And uh, and last year, the Make Tunes at Cell book, which I really uh, enjoyed. Um, yeah. And it sort of expands on some points near the end of uh, Independently Animated about getting your work out there and, and getting yeah. that sort of scene. Were you approached to do a book specifically about that topic? Or was it... Yeah, that? no, they, they came to me. They, they, it's, it was called Focal Press, and they're known for doing uh, books about uh, making things and how to do things and instructional kind of books and uh, they had done some other animated books actually and they approached me about doing it and I'd been thinking about doing something like this myself because I tour uh, the world doing these master classes and basically it's all the knowledge that I uh, impart on my master class expanded into a book because there's a lot more uh, uh, details that I talk about in the book that I don't talk about in my master class. So it goes all the way from uh, getting an idea, uh, how to make the idea funny, doing the storyboards, doing the layouts, uh, creating the characters, how to draw, how to, how to make characters interesting, how to use design, uh, design concepts, color concepts, color theory, how to uh, animate, of course, uh, how to do shadows. I mean, it really gets into so many details. It's really a, an all-purpose Bible for any animator who wants to, uh, wants to do animation. And it's something I would certainly recommend to, because it seems like a lot of like, independent animators, they almost don't consider it an option that you can sell your films when they're done. A lot of people, they just, it's in their head, it's only festivals and awards. Yeah, and if you yeah. don't kind of hit the mark there, then you just retire the film. And it's sort of a shame. You know what? I, I'm going to get on my soapbox here because I, I run into a lot of uh, filmmakers from England, and not just England, but Europe in general. And they're, they're really cynical right now. They say, oh, the government has no more money. Uh, I can't make a film. The anima independent animation scene is dying out. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, governments aren't helping us. And I say, hey, wait, wait a minute. Who needs government? Why, do, why are you trying to make a film to make your government happy? Why don't you make a film to make yourself happy? I mean, drawing is free. There's, there's no charge in drawing. Make your own film. Uh, you know, find a friend who does music. Put some music on there. You got a movie. It's all done on computer now. Who needs 
$100,000, to make a movie um, when you can do it yourself and have the freedom to make it the way you want it. No government officials, no bureaucracy is going to have problems with it. You can put sex and violence and whatever you want in the film, and there's total freedom in making your own movie. So I'm, I'm really... Um, upset when everybody complains to me how the, the industry, the animation industry is dying. I mean, I think it's, there's a great market. People love animation. People want to see animation. Uh, don't wait for a government grant uh, to, to make your film come true. You know, just do it. Go out and do it. Would you say that to have a film be something that an audience will buy as opposed to a film that would just sort of be highly accoladed? Are there certain qualities right that make a better selling points for a certain type of film? Well, that's another issue that I like to talk about uh, because there are a lot of wonderful films that are uh, only made for getting prizes at festivals. And I, I accept that. I think that that's... Uh, that's a valid point if you want to make a film to win prizes but these films are uh, really hard for the audience to watch uh, they're hard to sell the TV stations don't want to buy them uh, DVD selections don't want to buy them um, movie theaters don't want to show them um, so I, I tend to stay away from those kind of films that are very um, kind of avant-garde or, or political or, or very soul-bearing. I, I make films that I think people uh, are entertained by. And to me, that's the key word, the, the, to entertain. Uh, you go to YouTube and see what all the uh, the top YouTube videos are, and you don't see many political films up there or, or abstract films. It's films that are funny or, or wacky or really have beautiful art. And I, that, that's the kind of films that, that I want to make. I am in the middle of making a film right now, a short film, mm -hmm. since I'm pretty much done with my part of working on cheating. Um, I have some free time, and I decided to make a short. Uh, it's called Drunker Than a Skunk. Uh -huh. And it's it's basically a cowboy film set to a poem by a friend of mine named Walt Curtis. And I'm working on that right now. And it's three minutes long. It's a very... Uh, very easy length to sell, and it's basically just a bunch of wacky drawings of, of cowboys uh, beaten up on the, on this drunk, mm -hmm. and that's it. That's how it's about. <laughs> but it's the kind of film that it, everybody wants to see. You know, they love seeing cowboys. They love seeing drunks get beat up. You know, what's not to enjoy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds excellent. Especially in England. I don't know if people like to drink in England. I know it would be very popular there. We have a whole culture of drinking and beating up over here. It's, <laughs> it's sort of an art form. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a classic of American Westerns, as you know. You know, mm. get going to a saloon and having a big bar fight. That's basically what this is. Mm. A big bar fight. <laughs> Cow a cowboy bar fight is what it is. But this one, the horses get involved and <laughs> uh, prostitutes get involved. It's very, very out there. You also showed a uh, line test or possibly a storyboard test for a new uh, guard dog film at an airport. Yes. Is that still happening? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just haven't had time to get into it. I really want to make this piece uh, the best of the dog films. As soon as I finish with my uh, my work in Cheaton, uh, I needed a film to enter into uh, Annecy because I wanted to go to the Annecy Festival. So I didn't have time to do the guard dog film. But I believe after this uh, Drunker Than a Skunk film, I will uh, get finally get started on the, the, the new dog film. It's going to be called Cop Dog. Mm -hmm. And it's all storyboarded. Like you say, it's ready to go. I just have to... Uh, start the animation cool and speaking of annecy for a number of years now you've had your own screening event annecy yes. plus can you explain a bit what that's about and why you started it up 
Did we show one of your films in that? I'm, I can't remember. Uh, if I did yes, that. in 2011. Yeah, yeah. But damn decent of you, sir. And uh, uh, much appreciated. Yeah, it uh, started... Uh, it wasn't my idea, actually. It was uh, Pat Smith's idea. Mm-hmm. who's a wonderful uh, New York animator. And... Uh, uh, one of my films, uh, Guard Dog, actually, which was nominated for an Oscar, was rejected by Annecy. And I thought, wow, that's that's weird. It's such a popular film. So I decided to show it anyway in Annecy. We were going to uh, rent, uh, take it to a bar and just show it on a TV screen. And then I heard from other artists who said their films were also rejected by Annecy. So we had a little, a little mini film festival called... Um, Annecy Plus, and uh, we, we started showing films that were rejected, and we plan to do it again this year. So you'll definitely will be there in some capacity. Um, I can't say definitely, uh, because I don't know if this film will be accepted, uh, and it helps if they pay for the hotel uh, in Annecy. So uh, I think it's a good chance I'll be there, but um, uh, you never know. Mm-hmm. It seems to be quite highly regarded, and although... I guess technically unofficial, spiritually it's considered part of the Annecy experience by all the people I know who go there. Um, (laughs) Have the main Annecy lot been supportive of it? Yeah, Serge dropped by a couple times. He he likes the idea that it's a... um What's the word for it? A, there's a French word for it, uh, contra festival contra or something like that. And uh, it's part of the show. It's part of the event, and we always get good crowds. We're thinking of moving it to a larger space because last time it was just so crowded, uh, there was no room for everybody. So we, we're looking for a larger venue. Cool, cool. I guess also now you can officially say you've you've animated on The Simpsons, which. Uh is, is yeah, the, uh, there's a new one I'm doing now. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a uh, Simpsons noir. It's uh, Bart Simpson. I'm sorry, Homer Simpson is uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart from Maltese Falcon. Uh-huh. And he, uh, he pulls a gun out, and then Marge pulls a gun, and everyone pulls a gun, and then they all turn into gangsters. It's very dark, it's very uh, atmospheric, and uh, it's supposed to run in America uh, next weekend, this weekend. But I don't know if it will or not, so we'll see. Cool. But yeah, watch for it. I don't know if they play The Simpsons in England the same time they play it here. It's a good question. I think the scheduling is very haphazard over here. Yeah, like Sometimes they'll show things in parallel with the States, and then sometimes it'll be six months to a year. You know? Yeah. But yeah, The Simpsons yeah. is such a big... You know, draw. I think they like to get their hands on it pretty shortly. So, well, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Why, why do people know me in England? Because I have a hell of a time getting my features distributed in England, and the shorts too. The last film I got uh, distribution in England was The Tune, uh-huh. which was in '82, I think, and Tar- Tartan Video put out a video of that film. But I don't think. Uh, my other films have gotten distributed distribution in England, and I found it really difficult to to mm. get it and it's it's mystifying to me because I'm I'm big in Germany, I'm big in France, I'm big in Spain, but England really is a tough nut to crack. England I think when it comes to independent films seems very mm. precious about it being them being English films. You know, yeah. and I think maybe that's sort of where they they focus their Mm. attentions on on buying and distribution and stuff like that uh, who knows maybe with cheating i'll i'll break that uh break that barrier and i get a distribution deal in you in uk yeah who's hoping i think f- speaking for myself i think uh, what sort of mainly got me into your work was a run about 10 years ago on possibly the mm. paramount channel 
which I don't think Ooh. still exists, and they would show yeah. shorts in between uh, programs. Uh. And so they would show yeah. her, like, uh, Push Comes to Shove and How to yeah, Make Love to yeah, a Woman yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> and I recognized it as being very reminiscent of those old knick-knack commercials. Yeah, that's the knick-knack guy. <laughs> and then I just kind of looked you up and, and sort of went from there. And then I started, you know, I think it was just before I went to uni and then doing a sort of animation yeah. course. You know, you, you yeah, hear more about yeah, people. Yeah. And so it sort of goes from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That was Ben there, chatting to uh, workaholic Bill Plimpton. Yes, chatting about uh, uh, the wealth of uh, additional projects he's been working on. And just again, to remind everyone, this is all alongside working on a feature film that is now nearly done over the the course of of just a few years. Very inspiring stuff. The hope is, should I uh, reach his sort of level of reputation or his sort of tier as far as the independent scene goes or whatnot, I'd be at least half as productive. I'd still have the enthusiasm. That's my hope. You know, uh, one can never guarantee these things. But uh, do you, yeah. when you create your own stuff, are you creating them with, like, with in mind that you're going to get a claim for this, or do you sort of create just to fulfil an impulse, or to sort of get a message out of your head, or to convey a, a you know, a representation of a, a thought or something? I mean, when you say in in X amount of years' time, you wish to have this similar attitude and, and productivity i mean wh- what do you do it for what do you animate for uh well at the moment i uh, i've sort of stopped thinking about it because there was a point where i would overthink things and put way too much thought in the the oh this might lead to this that might lead to that the story that i i think i've now told a couple of times about where it all began and it was with bill plimpton and it was with bill plimpton talking about uh, just sort of being amongst an audience that was responding positively to a film. That was my initial reasoning. And then I kind of lost sight of that for a, a little while when I was doing my MA, because it seemed like suddenly it was about festival exposure and winning awards, that sort of fast-tracking one's career, and the idea that if you didn't achieve things that way, you weren't quite getting things done. And then uh, a few years go by, and, uh, you know, I, I win no BAFTAs, I win no Oscars. What ends up happening is is you get feedback from the audience and you get occasionally to be in the audience and, and, you know, hopefully it will be a positive reaction. And that became what I was doing it for again. So It's, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting sort of look as, you know, to be an independent animator, what's the ethic? You know, you're not... Oh, well, you know what? If I'm going to be honest, it's money. Yeah. Uh, now I need to, to keep making money and I need to stay visible enough to continue to get a stream of, of freelance work in. So it's really in your corner if you've made a couple of, of films that have done well. Sometimes it's not actually. I mean, sometimes, okay, hypothetically, let's not assume this ever actually happened. Okay. But maybe I might have applied for a job. And the person I was applying to had always wanted to make films themselves and they never actually got off their ass and did it. And maybe they had at one point drunkenly voiced to a couple of peers we have in common. Who the hell does this Ben Mitchell think he is putting this stuff on his CV? Maybe that might have happened. But as far as I'm aware, if it did hypothetically happen, it would have only hypothetically happened once. And everyone else has been awesome and cool about it. What I do tend to downplay 
with the film of the i've made three films at the moment that have you know i will clarify they are not films that set the world alight they are not films that won many awards they were just fun to do and and important to sort of keep my my sort of animation muscles from going into you know atrophy uh between commissions the one film that was the easiest to knock out is the film that did the best of course that's how life works why wouldn't it <laughs> and it's a film about santa claus but really it's a film about middle management not pulling their weight and it's not high satire it's a very obvious basic little skit the way it's conveyed that element of the film i i do not highlight if i'm applying to the middle management guy at the mm -hmm. company you know um and it's funny how many how many times since making this film which was nearly three years ago now i've been in a situation completely parallel to the film I made. At this point, we're not even talking about animation. We're talking about existence. We're talking about every job for every kind of company, you know, with any kind of hierarchical structure. Well, this, so. this, this sort of, well, this goes back to Bill, doesn't it? Is it, you know, Bill Plimpton and, and, and successful indie animators is that, you know, they've, they've worked through that by whatever means, uh, talent, uh, they've become a success and, um, and there you go, you know, and, and, and they get to that position through hard work and through wading through the treacle that is independent animation at, at that level. Yeah, and more power to them. I mean, the uh, the book that Bill Plimpton wrote, the second book, The Make Tunes That Sell Without Selling Out, is a really valuable... I think we... Did I talk about this in the last one? I don't know if we did talk about it in the last one, but I've got the book as well. If I did, it's worth talking about more. Yes. Because it's... Honestly, if you, you're listening to people like Bill or Signe or whoever, and you have this thing of like, well, I'd quite like to make my own films. I don't really want to go through a sales agent, and I don't really you know, want to go through the rigmarole of begging for funding and having to adapt my script. Buy this book. I mean, a lot of it is common sense stuff that you could look up, but it lays everything out. There's a lot of stuff in there that may be surplus to requirements. He actually goes into stuff like, you know, how to draw. That may not be necessary if you have an idea of what the artistic direction of your film is. But, you know, hey, you might need some advice on draftsmanship or whatever. So, you know, it's it's all good for other people. The stuff where it goes into distribution where it goes through the feasibility of hiring voice actors, the great list of festivals to target, that kind of stuff. He's also very candid with his own mistakes. Yeah. Which is, it's gold. You know, you've got, mm. you know, 20 plus years worth of experience of an experienced uh, animator in your hands. And it's written in his voice. It's not typed up by a third person. It is Bill telling you how to make tunes that sell without selling out, which is the title of the book. You know, it's, mm. it, it's great to have that guidance, you know, from in such a, in such a way. And it's not one of these like massive books either. It's a short, sweet, informative, well laid out, very easy to kind of digest book. And uh, yes, yeah, so I, I recommend it. I just kind of, of listening to him talk about the notion of selling your films and, and, there really is nothing to stop you from just doing it yourself. You can be your own sales agent. You can put together your own EPK. You can burn your own DVDs. It's, a, it's boring, but you can do it. <laughs> you know, it's, and again, like with everything, technology nowadays takes a lot of the excuses out of it. The world is changing, Stephen. Mm. The world belongs to us, us indie fellows. So yeah, check out the book. And really, I mean, if you, if you've been listening to these interviews and you're, you're still not even familiar 
with Bill Plimpton's work, check him out online, go on his website, go on YouTube, go wherever there are clips of his films or whatever. He has books as well, graphic novels that are kind of like storyboards arranged like comics. That was, you know, what really kind of sold him to me, as I sort of referenced in the interview, you know, the the book versions of his feature films like uh, Mutant Aliens and Hair High are just a joy to look at. And again, because he has that sort of foundation behind the work that he does, that's really why the finished results come off so well, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. As I was saying before, I mean, I was it wasn't really meant to sound facetious, but I do feel that there is a change in the air for the independent scene. And I think it's less evident when you see someone like John Kreese for Lucy have a successful Kickstarter campaign, which isn't saying anything against him, because I, you know, I, like many people, have a, a, a debt, a creative debt to that guy for what he'd set in motion for animation. But when you see someone like Bill Plimpton, who is less as known as a mainstream name, and then taking it that one step further, someone like Sidney Bauman, I, and I think a lot of people became really aware of her work from her association with Bill Plimpton, Yeah, which again is why it's so great to see these people support each other. It's kind of like this Russian doll thing of success breeding success. And people are making things for their audience, not for networks who want to change this and give this more mainstream appeal and take the sex out of that or put more sex into that take the violence and the bad language out yeah. or whatever. It's a, know. it's a pure product. It's it's and it's yeah. pure because it's supported by the fans instead of supported by corporate agenda or anything like that. Um, you know, somebody taking an idea and shaping it to their own ends, but you know, we'll give you the money to do it. Where was, where was Kickstarter when, uh, when Richard Williams wanted to complete um, thief and the cobbler? Exactly. Exactly. Would have been a perfect vehicle yeah. for that. But the world didn't work like that back then. No, back in the olden days. And, you know, it, it is an option for all tiers of the indie scene or the, the mainstream scene. It's a little less fair, perhaps, if you're like a really sort of well-known, famous person able to, you know, solicit huge funds from the audience. But, you know, hey, if it works, it works. As long as you have a, an awareness and a, a proportionate sense of who you are in the industry and what you can bring to something and not get greedy. There's no reason why a project can fail. Toward the end of last year, a guy who uh, we've interviewed, a guy called Sam Morrison, uh, he set up a Kickstarter thing for a very uh, purposefully low budget, short part of a series. I think the third in the series, we know went to his friends, went to the animation community, and I think was able to raise well over the goal. I don't think he would consider himself a famous name within the animation industry, but you know, for the amount that he was soliciting, it was very feasible and it was reasonable as far as the production cost of the film went. And he's going to get this film made. I have no doubt because again, he also marries it with the follow through. You know? Yeah. It's that creative drive that, you know, the question I asked you earlier on, what drives the animator? What, what, what is it? You know, is it, it's, it's the need to create. When it gets awkward is when someone in that general sort of wheelhouse, they see someone like John Kay or whoever get, you know, upwards of a hundred thousand dollars to fund their project. And they're like, Oh, okay. That's how this Kickstarter thing works. So you get Joe Q nobody saying, okay, fund my pilot for, you know, a hundred thousand pounds. No one knows who this person is. 
more often than not, the projects are dreadfully mediocre. Then they get, you know, pissy because it doesn't raise funds. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well, think. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Go back to Sam Morrison. The reason I I interviewed him was a, a particular film of his that I think is very funny. It's called Greetings. And there's a line in that film, which I love. I, I forget the name of the protagonist. I think it's Harry. I'm paraphrasing, but the line is, Harry sits down with a sense of achievement disproportionate to what has been achieved. <laughs> From talking to Sam, I think that was more of a kind of throwaway line. But my God, if that doesn't sum up how so many people think, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Including me. From time to time. Well, it, it's how I feel when uh, when these podcasts are finished. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we have our uh, our loyal audience to bring us down to earth. <laughs> yeah, that thing did really irritate me as well. Was there was a certain time not so long ago when Kickstarter wasn't available to to guys in the UK, and if you wanted to fund something on Kickstarter in the UK. You had to really jump through hoops in order just to, you know, buy gift vouchers in order to donate a gift voucher, etc. Right. But people who had an idea, you know, I'm not judging the idea, would I'd say, well, how are you, how are you going to fund your film? And they'd say, oh, I'll just go on Kickstarter. It's like, well, you won't just go on Kickstarter. Yeah. You know, they may show me, uh, and a few people did this. Some people more had a bit more savvy than others, but some people would show me their finances, and it would be a little bit. It's okay. So, so where are the prizes? Where are the prizes in this? Oh, right. That, okay. Yeah, exactly. No, no incentives. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind? Why would people give you money then? Yeah. And <laughs> sorry, that sorry to interrupt. That, yeah. That hit on the the main gripe with me. Well, even the people that did come up with prizes, you know, uh, postcards or or DVDs and stuff. It's like okay, so you you're coming up with the idea of DVDs and postcards and stuff, but you're not. You're not factoring that into your finances. You need to stick an extra grand on top of this already ridiculous amount of money that you're asking for, for yeah. something that ultimately won't get made because you're not on Kickstarter because you live in the UK. <laughs> you know, and it's, people need to be wary about the, the strategy when it comes to funding or, and, and stuff. And plus, you know, why do you think you need that much money when you've got, mm. you know, the, the technology is available, the cheaper alternatives is available. Yeah. When I was a kid, when I didn't have a, a very powerful, when I was a lad, I didn't have a very powerful computer. So I used to go to a, a place called uh, Corridor Arts and, you know, we'd turn up once a week to their open sessions and they all had Macs and, and cameras and stuff. And they'd just let us run riot and we'd just go turn up, me and my brother, and we'd just animate and we'd animate until everyone was shut in the office and we'd love it. It was great. There are places like that that will support you. You know, you don't necessarily have to go with the same thing that, the very famous John Kay has, has done. Yeah. Yeah, you, you need to add a little bit of realism to uh, to what it is you're actually creating. It's okay to dream big, but <laughs> occasionally you just need to ask ask somebody else for their opinion on, uh, on what to do. Yeah. Going back to Sam, you know, with his thing, he had incentives that were perfectly appropriate for the type of project and for the amounts of money. Like, there was no expectation that anyone would pledge over a hundred, say. But if you only wanted to pledge, you know, a couple of quid or a fiver, you still got stuff back. I, stuff that wouldn't have material costs, say. Like, you know, downloads, PDFs, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's still valuable. It's still you know, something that people would like. I mean, that's thinking things through. Yeah, there's a feasibility to that. There's a, yeah. That's a smart move. And he reached his goal. 
And he definitely cleared it with, you know, a lot of time to spare. And it seems to be progressing very well. In fact, you know what? Let's give his website a plug. It's uh, theevilgenius.co.uk. Sam Morrison. With a web address like that, that's surely enticing. So anyway, much discussion inspired by Mr. Bill Plimpton. So yes, very grateful to have the opportunity to talk to him again, to catch up with him. Very keen to see how this Cheetan movie pans out, how it does with an audience and see what kind of reach it gets. Hmm. So you can check out uh, more info on Bill Plimpton at plimptoons.com. has a whole bunch of his uh, previous work, artwork, particularly inspiring Tour de Force of uh, the American indie scene. You know what? We made it through two Plimpton segments on our podcast, and we didn't tell that same Disney story either time. <laughs> yes. You can look it up if you like. But, yeah. Uh, it's a good story, but, you know, everyone knows it. And the thing is, I, I, I've read quite a few interviews and little bits of coverage recently, and every one of them had to lead with that Disney story. It's like, oh, we get it. Well, this is it. When, you, when, when you're talking about an independent animator wanting to stay independent, this makes him the perfect example. So, at the end of March, uh, we will have been uh, producing the Squiggly podcast uh, for a year, a full year. But, you know, it's only really possible. This podcast can only ever come together because of the support that we get from all the lovely, loyal listeners. And also, we get an awful lot of support through Twitter, Facebook, and through the lovely emails we get. Uh, so, thank you very much. Last month, we asked the, uh, the Squiggly Twitter and the Facebook pages for their favourite animation things that began with the letter A. We got hundreds of suggestions for TV shows, feature films, animators, short films, just basically anything animated. We want to compile these together into regular special podcasts uh, that are going to sit alongside these variety podcasts. And we're calling it, rather originally, the Squiggly A to Z. And it's basically a chance for you guys, for our listeners, uh, to suggest topics that you would like us to cover. Um, and we will focus on a different letter of the alphabet every month. So the next one will be the letter A. By all means, suggest other letters, but we want to, we'll save them for later. But right now, we want to focus on the letter A. So please get in touch uh, on Twitter. And if you are using Twitter, please use the hashtag, if there's space, squiggly A to Z. Uh, you can get in touch on Facebook, uh, drop us messages, or just write on our wall. We do read them all. Or if you, uh, if you really want to uh, sing the praises of your favourite animation-related things beginning with A, then you can email podcast at squiggly.co.uk. And, and yeah, also, if you do see a suggestion uh, that's already been done that you want to suggest um, on Twitter or on Facebook or anything, then by all means, please just suggest it again. We, we want to get a, a feel uh, of what are the most popular ones. Uh, I mean, you know, the idea is that these podcasts, uh, they'll be made for you, but they'll be suggested by you. And so it's a great way of us interacting and to provide you, uh, more importantly, with, with more regular uh, squiggly podcasts so please yes do get involved in these squiggly a to z podcasts so in october last year was it october august april three years ago two years ago a million years ago it seems ages ago doesn't it ben but me and you went to london to see a preview of a film uh, a very special film uh, in terms of its production Created as a as a homage to the uh, late uh, Monty Python member uh, Graham Chapman, and uh, so we saw the film. 
we enjoyed the film, although it's not without its flaws, then we waited for it to be released. And waited and waited and, uh, yeah, it didn't quite happen, but you can buy it on DVD now. It's continuing with the theme of independent feature production, which is that little bit more intimidating than uh, independent shorts production. This one is particularly notable for just how they achieved it, for just how they got the job done. What essentially, you know, was able to carry off such a long-form story uh, was to have it be a sort of um, multi-studio collaboration. Yeah. So the end result has variety. Let's lead with that. There are so many things about it that make it a worthwhile film in a sort of curiosity sense, but uh, the source material certainly cannot be flawed. It's a uh, book that Graham Chapman wrote uh, before he died called Elias Autobiography, and it's his heavily fictionalized life story. And uh, the real virtue is that he recorded an audio book of it, and that's the audio track that is the foundation, essentially, for the film. So it's a film narrated by the late Graham Chapman. So uh, that's automatically a pretty decent selling point, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what a stroke of look. Well, it's a bit like how they did those new um, Looney Beatles. Tunes films. I was going to say Beatles, but yeah, Looney Tunes as well. When the, when the Beatles came out, they found a John Lennon recording in a desk, and then the other Beatles got back together and um, and recorded the, the backing of it and just put his, his uh, tune over it. But I'm a big Beatles freak, so I would automatically go to the Beatles rather than Looney Tunes. <laughs> to be honest, Steve, I would have I would have uh, uh, figured it would be a 50-50 proposition. Because I, I think your Beatles mania is sort of matched by your animation mania. You know me too well. It's similar in, to the anthology recordings and the new, um, what was his name, Matt O'Callaghan? Yeah, Matt O'Callaghan, um, Looney Tunes. In the sense of they've pilfered the intellectual properties of a defenseless corpse. <laughs> but I'm sure Mr. Chapman would approve. The bulk of the Monty Python team got on board with it, except guess who? <laughs> who? <laughs> Has Eric Idle ever like gotten in on any like post- Monty er, er, Python heyday, reconciliation, reunion, homage, whatever. He always seems to be the. Besides the, the the big the big reunion in Aspen, I don't know uh, I don't know what the 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 politics behind that is, uh, or indeed if there are politics, maybe he just can't be bothered. Maybe I mean maybe he's just holding out for you know nuns on the run too. <laughs> I'm holding out for nuns on the run too. I know, I like Eric Idle. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I'm going to eat my 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 words because a few about ten years ago, I saw him at uh, Juste Pour Rire, or just for laughs. It's this big comedy festival in um, Montreal, and he was the compare of this big gala event. And uh, completely not on the bill, unexpected halfway through, Terry Jones comes on stage, and they did the uh, the nudge nudge wink wink thing. Um, wow! Completely. Well, it wasn't impromptu entirely because they would have had to rehearse it or whatever. But it certainly wasn't expected from the audience. So yeah, you know. Hey. Anyway, he's not a part of this film. This film, which insists it's not part of the Monty Python canon at all. It's a separate Graham Chapman film. I think it's uh, directed by Terry Jones' son. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. In all the sort of press kit stuff that we had a look at. And then all the kind of bumps right up to a sort of recent Q&A that they did. There was this, this real impulse to distance themselves from the Monty Python brand. 
of, you know, this isn't a Monty Python film. You know, this is the Monty Python guys helped us out and that's great. We're really appreciative, but don't consider it some kind of contemporary 21st century reunion. If that's going to happen, this isn't it, which is a little at odds with the fact that the DVD cover <laughs> yeah, for the really has been so designed to make people think it's a Monty Python film. It's a little misleading. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know whose decision that that was. It makes sense, but it's not a million miles away from you know when like a, a big Pixar film comes out and some random studio puts out one of their <laughs> shitty films and gives it a really misleading DVD cover. Yeah. Like, I think Braver or Bravest was <laughs> yes. the recent one. And it's like, it was like three an- quid in Tesco's in the bargain yeah. bin. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's made it, it, for the hope that somebody is stupid enough to say, oh, Brave's out on DVD already. I'll just take this home. Three pounds, that's the bargain. And and <laughs> I think it's I think it's for, like, grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah. You know, with bad eyesight. Well, it's kind of like if I'm walking around Aldi without my glasses, I may as well be buying name brand products. I don't know the difference. It looks enough like the actual cereal, and I'm probably not going to pay too much attention once I've gotten it home. The lasagnas may taste a little more horsey than than usual, but hey, it's, 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 it's par for the course if you're buying on a budget. Anyway, what I kind of wish they'd done, they had a really nice poster for it, you know, when there was a sort of planned theatrical release and when they were kind of doing the uh, the press screenings and stuff. It was sort of Terry Gilliam-esque, but it wasn't really. It was more using visuals from the film specifically. And they just kind of abandoned that for a very Monty Python feature-esque thing where the title is all in big blocky letters. It, it looks like the life of Brian. It looks like the life yeah. of Brian credits or now for something completely different. Uh, DVD box set, which is available in your local closing down HMV. You know, you can see it in the, you know, there. It looks very sort of in your face. This is a, a Python thing, which I would say is a is detrimental for what it is as a product. I wouldn't fault them for it. It makes perfect sense from a marketing perspective. I just don't see why they would have been so insistent that this is not a Monty Python film do not interpret it as a Monty Python film. Don't tell your friends it's a Monty Python film. And then the DVD cover looks so much like a Monty Python film. The phrase Monty Python is quite prominent. You have to kind of squint to see that it's part of a subheading, the untrue story of Monty Python's Graham Chapman. All the other words are in this tiny typeface, but Monty Python's is is big. It's like the header. Mm-hmm. So if you're like two feet away, it looks like Monty Python's A Liar's Autobiography. Yeah. Oh, actually, you know what they do? They have kept in elements of the original poster, but they've kind of shunted it down toward the side. It's 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 a shame. It's, it's, it's probably very boring semantics of graphic design. I kind of came into animation from a graphic design background, so I'm kind of... There's a part of me that's still big on design and illustration and marketing and stuff like that, so that's why I'm kind of... It's probably more interesting to me. Let's talk about the actual film. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of- well, we can talk about the film in, in respect to what we've just been chatting about, the design. This is a film about and written by and starring with the later edition of Monty Python members and animation, Graham Chapman. Now, this is the problem is if you go in to watch this film and you want to watch a Monty Python film and you expect a Monty Python film and you expect the rest of the members. Because the thing is, Monty Python was a collaboration. This is the work of one man. 
This is the work of a surrealist, which is, is excellent. And the animation fits in extremely well with that. The fact that they've got the rest of the Monty Python gang minus Eric Idle is a bonus. At the end of the day, go in there and, and watch a film about a superb comedian. Mm. Yeah, And, uh, you know, someone who led a very interesting, very troubled, very idiosyncratic life. There is a lot to like. Mm -hmm. The degrees of success in which it's visually executed uh, does vary. I'll, I'll be honest. Fortunately, the people that we will be interviewing shortly, uh, all their bits got a really good response. <laughs> so that, that works out okay for me. I could say to them, oh yeah, I liked your bit. And I'm not like just, you know, being disingenuous for different reasons. Some bits are, are funny. Some bits are theatrical. One bit is, is the not particularly funny bit in the film, the kind of rather serious part of the film, the sort of cold turkey sequence. Mm -hmm. Cause he was, you know, uh, uh, an addict on top of, you know, uh, uh, many other things. So, yes, we'll be talking to uh, some of the people involved in a, in a minute. I mean, how did you feel it came together overall? On paper and from, from viewing, I would say I would like to see more films such as this, you know, bolder films, which incorporate uh, collaborative work between uh, some fine animation studios, mm. animation studios that you may not instantly recognise the name of, but animation studios with superb style and with, you know, directors, superb directors involved. Some of them fresh out of film school, some of them uh, more established, but in order to interpret this, um, this sort of psychedelic fantasy in, in different ways. I really enjoyed it. If we're going to go back onto the, onto the, the script and the, the, the comedic side of things, I would say that certain parts uh, worked better in the comedy than others. I think the funniest bits for me, comedy-wise and script-wise, were when they were showing old TVs with, with the old sketches on, but predated Monty Python, like the last the 1948 show I think he was on. Also, I must say, look out for uh, John Cleese's impression of David Frost. Ah, yes. <laughs> That, for me, was uh, a fine delivery, shall we say. And the visual variety, it works to at least the same degree that it doesn't work. You know, there are some really compelling visual styles you see on display. The mixed mediums, some 2D, some stop motion, uh, CG, combining the two. Oh, it was in 3D as well, which was the element that I thought was the least necessary. Yeah. But I think a, a quite welcome opportunity for the people involved to get some experience with uh, 3D compositing, stereoscopic compositing, I think it's called. Uh, I just don't necessarily think it was something that made the film. Like, there are certain films that are just valueless without 3D. Mm -hmm. Like, who the hell watches Avatar if they're not watching it in 3D on a big screen? Yeah. Like, what do you get from that piece of dog shit? <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, this is a film that doesn't rely on visual spectacle to carry it. In fact, in a lot of instances, the visuals are quite contemporary and, and minimalistic. But, you know, there are some uh, elaborate uh, full animation scenes as well. George Sander Jackson's sequence is quite complex and interesting paint-on-glass technique that uh, kind of comes out of nowhere and, and really takes you to a, an unusual place given the sort of journey you've been on up to that point in the film. So they were quite, you know, uh, adventurous with it. It's, it's entertaining, perhaps a little unfairly maligned as far as the criticism of it has gone, but it's a film, I think, its main audience, if you're not... I mean, A, it helps if you're a fan of Graham Chapman or Monty Python, 
but also it's like if you're interested in animation if you're interested in the way animation processes can be combined to tell a longer form narrative and uh, uh how that works and how that doesn't work i think it's like you said steve i think it's probably going to be the first of a new wave well i hope you know? i hope it is because um lord knows there's enough eager willing talented companies out there that would uh, want a piece of this want to yeah. want to be on board a project such as this certainly like to see more from some if not all of the studios involved in this mm. um see more of them they're taking on uh, you know similar projects uh, with a similar public awareness so uh, why don't we uh, uh, introduce the fine young men and women who worked on Elias' autobiography, who happened to live closest to me, <laughs> <laughs> which make things very convenient. We have Jane Davies, who we talked to for our Encounters special. She did the animation for the musical number of the film. Sit on my face, the Monty Python classic, given a sort of contemporary reworking. We also have the art director for that segment, Leia Hemming. They did this segment as part of A for Animation, which is a uh, the origin company, I guess, uh, for what's now known as A Productions. And uh, I guess they decided to be A for Animation again. Uh, we also have two directors from another Bristol company, Arthur Cox, George Sander Jackson, who I mentioned before, who did the, uh, the detox segment, and Matthew Walker, who did a couple of sequences, Graham Chapman's coming out to his friend's uh, party. Also, another sequence later in the film uh, that I think immediately precedes the detox sequence, where he's basically at a Nadia in LA in a hotel room, that's so the, it's not that's the funniest scene for me that scene got the biggest laugh i don't want to spoil it but it involves um it involves someone on the phone um but it it, it, it certainly got the biggest risk that and the song so you know hey we we lucked out with uh the people that we got to interview yeah uh why don't we uh have a little chat with uh matthew george jane and leia who all worked on elias autobiography and have them shed some light on uh how things came together from their perspective uh, well, to start with, um, if we just sort of introduce ourselves, um, or rather yourselves, with your name and the studio you worked for, for the film, how you're involved in the studio, how you're involved in the film. Especially that with- Jane Davis. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm Jane Davis. I worked for A for Animation, directed the section that we did for A for Animation. I'm Leah Hemming. I worked for a for animation as the art director. I'm George Sander Jackson and I work as a freelance director at Arthur Cox. I was involved with the Chapman project working on a couple of different scenes. One of them was the drying out section. I am Matthew Walker and I'm a freelance director with Arthur Cox and Ardman in Bristol. And I uh, also directed a few sections of the Lars uh, autobiography, two POV sequences, one of which was Graham Chapman getting very drunk in LA, and another section was his coming out party, where he tells his friends and the other pythons that he's gay. Were you at all aware of this project as it was coming together, but before you were actually approached to get involved with it? No. No? no? We, we yeah. weren't at all. Justin, appro- Justin one, of his, one of the other directors, he approached us um, because Andre, who works in the same building as his new 
Mark Taylor, who's an old friend of his, who Mark Taylor's the, he owns A for Animation and A Productions. Mm -hmm. And then Justin had approached a lot of companies and after he spoke to us about it, we suggested a load of other companies they should approach. One of them being Arthur Cox, because we knew they were great and they would probably love to do this project as well. Because I think initially a lot of bigger companies were like, there's not enough budget for us. Right. But I think a lot of the companies that did take it on saw that, you know, thought it'd be a great project to be involved with. Mm. As far as you're aware, is that how they kind of approached all the studios in a sort of word of mouth sense? Or? I think so. Yeah. I think they had a long list of companies that they wanted to possibly work with and then whittle that down depending on interest. And mm. I think Hardman had been approached and they also suggested Cops as well. And at that point, uh, once the studios have been like sort of picked and decided on, what then determines which segments each one is working on? Do people pitch for it or were they designated? When we were initially approached, we were able to pitch, if we were interested, we were able to pitch on whichever section we wanted. They'd split the script up into uh, scenes and then we sort of went through and we could, we could pick out which ones we were interested in. And in my case, the one I pitched on was the one I got, which was the point of view sequence. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in other cases, companies worked on different sections to the one they pitched on. I think that was yeah. the case of you, wasn't it? Well, for us, we, we pitched for the Cambridge section. We we had some suggestions. For, I think well, there were probably sections that a lot of people hadn't pitched for, I guess. So we initially, when we came up with our process, um, we pitched for Cambridge. Between me, Leah and Paul, we discussed how we would do this, because it was a stereoscopic project, and we discussed how we would do it, and then Leah did a lot of design work and things like that. So when, when we went to the meeting... We were armed with Leah's drawings, and they loved it. <laughs> but what happened then, um, later on, they, they asked if we would do the song section, and I we just went, yes, because nice. it's the song. <laughs> <laughs> well, the song section, actually, I think was part of the sequence that I pitched on. I think it, was, it came after the hotel sequence that I made. The way they originally split up, the song section was part of that sequence. Mm -hmm. And I was really glad when that was taken out of that section. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have done both. There's a lot of characters. Yes. What was the count? 150 plus, was it? Yeah. 156 characters. Leo had to design. They all look different. Jane had to animate. <laughs> Are they all doing similarly no. debauched things? No. Every character is different. Except for the two chimney sweeps at the back. The last scene. <laughs> ah. I did duplicate them but I adjusted the movement so they're not exact and and oh and, and the waiters they're slightly duplicated but they're all individually moved and zhuzhed <laughs> well if you if you zhuzh it then it's okay <laughs> yeah. it's uh yeah hopefully the uh, abundance of penises distracts <laughs> <laughs> was there um because all the scenes are sort of they lead on from one another and to some degree, they interconnect quite well. Was there any sort of communication between different studios working on different scenes uh, to kind of ease the transitions at all? Yeah, there was. Um, at the beginning, they kind of had an idea of there being transitions as opposed to just cuts between um, scenes. And so once they'd kind of established the order, they kind of paired up the companies and we all had each other's details to contact each other. So in my case... The coming out party transitioned from um, Trunks 
section in Ibiza. On the bikes. Yeah. yeah. I think it ended up being slightly separate in the film in the end, but there are images from that sequence which are incorporated into the coming out party as holiday snaps on the walls. Mm-hmm. So there was some overlap in that sense. And, and yeah, with other sections, there was a lot more overlap in terms of sharing assets to animate. Mm. Ours was quite separate because um, ours went into yours, but because he blacks mm. out at the end of the song, you just fade to black. Mm. And then it's fade up from black. Yeah. So that, yeah. that tr- transition was easy. Uh, so the film probably didn't have the, the biggest budget like you guys mentioned and were there any sort of compromises that needed to be made because of this or like changes perhaps to your scenes from when you had what you sort of originally had in mind? I think it was quite clear from the beginning how much money there'd be but I think the difficulty was the 3D mm. aspect because I don't think any of us knew what, how to do stereoscopic 3D and had no experience with that. So for me, I certainly had to kind of rethink some of the design aspects to accommodate 3D. And having learnt, now learned 3D and knowing how to do it, I think I would probably do it a bit differently now. Cause I'd mm-hmm. So yeah, that, I think that affected some of the design decisions and the workflow. Why was it exactly that they decided to go with a 3D angle? Well, you, you can uh, get more funding. Ah, okay. This yeah. like, opens up funding opportunities. Yeah, I think Adobe provided some software to help with it, and, and the film's been incorporated into some Adobe marketing. Oh, that's good. Cool. Our, our 3D element, though, it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it's just that me and Leah didn't really have to worry about that, because Paul Hill... Because we have Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everyone should have a Paul. Because we, what we did, when we initially spoke about how we were going to do it, we... Um, it's all 2D, but it's all in a 3D environment anyway, in After Effects. Mm. So we just left it to Paul at the end to just set up the camera. And because we built it in 3D, and it was actually in a three-dimensional space, all the 2D planes and everything, as we were going along, we figured it out because the other main guys was Peter and Chris. And between us all, we sort of just constructed it all. And at the end, Paul made all the 3D work. He got a bit of a headache. <laughs> how do you how do you test that on the fly? Did did you have to have like the glasses? Um, we didn't really test it right till the end because oh. I was convinced that Paul Sorry. would figure it out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we um, we were able to use a TV round Arthur Cox mm-hmm. when we had some renders right at the end, just to double check. And then scarily, we had a big unveiling with Justin. It was right just before yeah. the deadline, and um, the heat, that was the first time we saw all our section in 3D. Wow. And it worked. They also gave each company a 3D screen. Oh, yes. So yes. we had oh, to oh. test stuff on, so that was really good. Now we have those screens to do more 3D if we so wish. Mm. But yeah, my section had the difficulty because the hotel sequence, because all point of view, the camera was constantly moving, and mm. that ended up being a nightmare trying to make work in 3D. So I know that certain sequences, it was 3D in the sense that like each sort of plane was on its own sort of layer, but within the characters themselves, that sort of remain 2D, sort of like a kind of cutout thing. I think everyone used different mm. processes and stuff. It's like because yeah. you know, with ours, we just made it like a cutout theatre plane, and then each surface was painted by yeah. So we had like a system that I'd save all my documents into these pre-made measures. Yeah. 
things. Mm. We, had to, we had to tweak some mm. elements, but it was kind of a good system. But we had to do that through the time constraints because a lot of what we did was out of hours. Right. As far as we were aware, Tinkle Glass had never been done in stereoscopic, so there was no kind of point of reference as to how to do it. And I'd never even seen a 3D film, let alone had any idea how to make one. So <laughs> it was quite an interesting challenge on that side of things. Um, and there was kind of two options. One was to set up a rig as though you were shooting stop motion and do the 3D with planes of glass, mm. which seemed like a world of complication to me. And yeah. So the second option was to create the separate elements that would become different layers individually and then layer that up in After Effects and do it that way, which is <laughs> the route we went down. Yeah, and I guess the second problem I had was because it's such a long-winded way of creating each image, I was trying to find ways of making loops that could then be effectively cut out and animated in After Effects. So it's a mixture oh, okay. of under frame and After Effects cut out animation. Cool. But with yours, was there more sort of like within the character animation itself as far as the 3D? Yeah, with the with the characters I did, um, for the close-ups of the point of view section, I did sort of split the characters into layers, um, so there wasn't a lot of depth to the characters, but they had some subtle depth, so the head would be a different layer to the body, and that would be right. slightly forward, and I'd also tilt them slightly to give a little bit of a perspective. And, yeah. and with the backgrounds, I was also kind of tilting the elements in the 3D space. There's a lot of back and forth with Daisy, who was doing with backgrounds. So I'd kind of roughly designed them and she was drawing them up and then as I was building them in 3D I'd get her to tweak something so it fit, fitted better and once I'd worked out where the camera was moving and could then work out where the flaws in the 3D were and mm. so there was a lot of kind of fine-tuning of that. Mm. Yeah, we didn't have that. <laughs> Our characters were flat. <laughs> Uh, so the film's largely based on Chapman's book. Did the studio come up with a script that was then given to you all to interpret as they had written, or when you were pitching on your segments, was it more like a section of the actual book itself? And they had a complete script. Okay. They Is that pretty much how it stayed then? Yeah. They think, tweaked it a bit. Yeah, there was some tweaks. And I think the order of sections also changed, and, but I don't think it was majorly changed over the course of the production. You wouldn't really want to anyway, no. so a big movie like that, like because it was all on tape as well, Like obviously because you've got um, Chapman's tapes of his dialogue and everything, and, but a lot of the characters were all recorded by then as well, weren't they? I think so, but, yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't really want to go off script really, plus it was all based on the book as well, and um, like with our section as well, it was Obviously, because we're following a song, we yeah. had to kind of we followed the script. Because obviously, our little song was meant to sort of condense quite a l longer bit of Chapman's life into a shorter section. So it was like a lot of the stage direction on on the script was adhered to, really. Mm -hmm. Like, so when he goes from backstage, he then goes into a hotel, but it's like later on in life, and then goes into a gay bar. Throughout the song, he's also supposed to become be drinking more and more and just getting more and more inebriated, which then goes into the next section. Mm. And then and hotel room, which was my section. But there, there was bits in the script where it would say, um, big song and dance number. <laughs> and, it <was> like, okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it did say, um, like, think my fair lady and things like that. So I did actually reference my fair lady in it. Mm -hmm. 
the bit with the waiters on the staircase. Sorry. And, and um, obviously reference the end scene, just where it goes all out into the street with Life of Brian, mm. but secretly, because we're not allowed to do that. But it's not, it's just referring it. And then asking Leah, saying, well, can you design some penis puppets now? <laughs> <laughs> can you do the texture now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a little bit of, obviously, creative sort of interpretation of the script, the way you storyboard it and things like that. But, mm. yeah, you've got to kind of stick with it, really. Mm. And it is a recurring thing in the film, and it's sort of something that's quite dear to my heart, is, you know, cartoon sex. It's kind of a juxtaposition of, in, in the musical number, it's sort of joyously gratuitous <laughs> and wonderful and uh, laid on incredibly thick. And then in, in yours, Matt, it's more sort of what's happening in the background almost. I mean, I personally think it should be in everything, but, you know, there's still a lot of kind of hypersensitivity about it, I guess, especially, like, in the States. And from your perspective, do you think that that kind of stuff has the potential to, like, limit its audience or work against it in terms of getting distribution? I guess it'll certainly limit the audience. That kind of stuff always does, but I don't think they were that worried about it in terms of distribution. They knew what they were getting. Yeah. I think they did, like, turn down more money because I think they were asked to tone it down, but they refused to do that, so, so it was quite nice that they stuck with their guns. guns yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there is that thing that it's a lot of common misconception that cartoons are just for kids sort of thing. Well, I've noticed that probably the most used still in the promotional materials is the still from the musical bit, and just sort of looking at it as a still without the context... Uh, and it is a style that you would think is more perhaps <laughs> innocuous. But I think it's why it's so effectively sort of funny, you know, when it plays out in the film. It's 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 cute debauchery, <laughs> you know. Um, when you were putting together the footage then was, because you mentioned there was like an unveiling at one point, were you pretty much left to your own devices initially, or did they check in on you to make sure things were going in a certain direction? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we had to uh, deliver animatics and then there might be some changes to the animatic and then they put the whole film together as an animatic so then they could see how the film was going together. And I, it was almost decided there was a bit too much voiceover. So mm. I think some sections did have some of the voiceover reduced. In my case, I don't know about you, but they didn't have any huge changes over the course of the production. I think with me there was some changes to, like you said, the... Um, voiceover my hotel sequence he had more of an internal monologue going on during that sequence and they yeah. took a lot of that out until it was just his uh, when he talked but in terms of the actual content it didn't change much but I think there were probably other sections which did if everyone had like one of the directors sort of overseeing their bits we had Justin. Yeah. We had Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Yeah. But, but wait, we, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Justin was also working closely with us, but um, from a directing point of view, it was Jeff was our section. We, we were a bit worried at one point that we were going a bit too stereotype, but then right. he assured me that... Oh, he wanted the stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. but he assured, assured us that it was the right way to go. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Predominantly, they were pretty happy for me to get on with it. Unfortunately, they decided at a later stage to kind of edit bits which had taken months to animate, which was slightly frustrating. Yeah. Um, I think partly because they found that their kind of looped ink on glass style quite visually intense, so I think they decided it worked better in a kind of shorter, snappier section. Mm -hmm. 
So they had the, ultimately the control over the final edit then? Yeah. Once you sort of submitted for the show, okay. They were, yeah, they were quite open at the beginning in terms of ideas and how you approached the sections you were working on, but then with the final edit, yeah, they, I think they kind of realised the overall film was a bit long and had to kind of trim different places. So uh, uh, what was your take on the finished film? Like, how do you feel it came together? It was really amazing seeing it for the first time, like having seen just little snippets of everyone's work and it's such a, you know, such a crazy mix. Seeing it all together, I actually was impressed with how well it was stitched together. Mm. I think as a film, it's got really good points and flaws, um, which is probably not surprising given it was quite an experimental kind of working process. Slightly frustrated by the kind of way it was edited and put together in terms of the coherence of the story of the film. Mm. I thought it came together so much better than I thought it would. Okay. <laughs> I loved it because I was unsure because obviously I hadn't, the only time I'd seen it all together obviously was um, at the animatic stage. But I, I just loved it. I thought everyone's, you know, it's, it's a very disjointed film, hmm. but the book that this is all based on is very disjointed as well. Hmm. That's the thing. It's like where Chapman would just go back and forward and be quite disjointed the way he wrote his autobiography. So, you know, in a way, the film is very true to the book. (laughs) (laughs) But but also, I I really, you know, I just thought I was so much more pleased with it than I thought I would be. I really enjoyed it too, I think. It was definitely one we didn't really know what to expect at the end because it was such an experimental way of working and such different styles throughout the film and it was certainly very anarchic and you know, as I was saying the animatic kind of gave a flavour of it but it was still kind of unclear whether it was really going to come together and I think the final product I think it did come out quite well with keeps it interesting as well yeah, doesn't it so I, I guess a, if like you know everyone would have different tastes so if they maybe don't like one section there'll be something else along the way soon with a different style I think before seeing the whole finished thing I was you know my worry was that would you understand what the hell was going on with the storyline because it's just there's so many different styles Mm -hmm. he jumps from one thing to another and one minute he's embellishing the truth and the next you don't know what's real and what's not but I thought it came together really well I really enjoyed it but having been so involved in it throughout the project it's hard to Mm. get a completely unbiased yeah. Perspective. I think that's what was nice hearing people's yeah. reactions. Hmm. Leah, so you, you were sort of in charge, I guess, of the art direction. Did that encompass everything, like the character design, and Background. was that? Yeah, it was. was the lot. Yeah. Was there any other sort of like cues that you used to determine the style? Well, after discussion, I guess right at the beginning, the first pitch we did was slightly different style. It was still quite cut out, but it was much more um, kind of watercolor painterly. Mm-hmm. It was set in Cambridge, so I was trying to, at that point, kind of match the style with the kind of feel of, mm-hmm. the, of the period and place that we were in. So when we got the brief for the song section, kind of once we started, Jane and I started discussing the storyboard and how it would work, and uh, Jane was saying lots of colours, swirly things, bright colours, but I kind of really wanted to keep the kind of 70s and 80s feel in there. So I, I did a lot of image searches on kind of 70s decor and mm. wallpapers and I did designing all the different things and looking at the cars and I just thought it would fit quite well. Because the, the whole bit was a bit of a downward spiral for Chapman as yeah. well. So mm. it was 
it was just to sort of counteract it, I guess, visually. But I had fun as well, kind of taking inspiration from other things with uh, details in the background, which it probably takes a few watching pastiches of paintings, mm -hmm. famous paintings and things like that. Or Policemen's balls. And yeah, posters, <laughs> random posters that were to do things at the time. Wow. Yeah, because Chapman liked the hoon, and a lot of it's painted as well. Yes, everything was painted. Because they were all done in separate panels and built in After Effects. Mm -hmm. it's, every section is painted separately, so the car would be a separate painting. From and all the characters, I drew them with a with a dip pen, and then Jane traced it on Flash to try and keep it with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thick and thin, really. Thick and thin yeah. outline, yeah. But yeah, I paint, because I come from an illustration background, so I do a lot of painting, so I was, I was quite keen to do this project in paint kind of and i think it, it gives something old school stuff nice, yeah. nice sort of texture to the thing because the other things stereoscopic what you can't do normally if it's a 2d project you can, you can just slap some textures over you know in after effects just slap some textures over the camera but you can't do that with stereoscope because then it would be like you're looking through a texture window so we you know i think we got away with the characters being quite flash like you know, um, because all the backgrounds and everything are very heavily textured because they're just proper paint. And, and it's great as well that they don't overly stand out. Like, you don't see all this textured background and flash characters just sitting in the front. It kind of, it works. Hmm. So, yeah, I think it saved us a lot of a headache in the end. And then you have Paul's magic lighting. Yes, well. yes. Oh, yes, yeah. and then it's all lit. Paul magic sprinkled over. This is the same Paul we talked to... Um and the Encounters podcast special. Yes. Uh, so we talked a bit about his uh, his magic then as well. Yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't I? I love Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll keep that in. <laughs> so, George, while the while these guys bits they sort of stand out in the film as being you know some of the funnier moments of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yours does stand out as well, but in the sense of being sort of more like visually quite striking. And also quite a shift in tone. And I was wondering if you could talk us through the sort of process for that and A, how that was presented to you, how you interpreted it, and then uh, your approach to actually doing it. I guess for me, I always am more interested in visually dark material and mm. things with quite a serious or sinister edge. Yeah. And so getting involved in this project, there wasn't many opportunities to go down that road because it's predominantly quite farcical and fun and mm. comedy. And we we got to pitch on whatever section of the film we wanted to, so I managed to find the one section that was pretty serious and dark and miserable. Yeah, yeah basically they, they were open to any ideas of how to go with that, and I produced a student animation that was ink on glass, and it was all quite dark, and I, I kind of pitched that as my working process that I was going to adopt to the drying out section. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it, I, I mean, I have no frame of reference for how ink on glass works. It sounds, right. to me, seems like something incredibly complex and very intimidating, which is okay. why I wouldn't touch, because there's no delete button on it. Yeah, know? I guess for me, it was my route into animation, so it's like, uh -huh. I'd never done animating. I did a module at uni um, as part of an illustration course, and I did a lot of monoprinting, and I thought, oh, maybe I could use monoprint as a way of animating. It seems like it would work. So I just kind of played around with it, and that's how I made my student film. And subsequently, I've done quite a lot of work 
in digital formats and uh, quite a lot of commercial jobs with Arthur Cox and it was really nice to have a chance to kind of go back to where I started and mm. use a process that to me was much more kind of immediate and um, I guess that I could get my head around weirdly a lot better in some ways because there's much more control you kind of create an image you adjust it a bit mm. keep going excellent so do you think this approach to animated features is obviously quite an experimental approach and it's it's certainly succeeded in the sense that it was done and there were no disasters and it is out there now and it's doing the rounds. Um, I mean, do you think it's something that could actually start to be implemented more and more in, you know, longer form animation perhaps? I guess it depends on the project. I mean, with this one, I think it did suit it quite well. Mm-hmm. I think if it was a more focused narrative film might not work as well if you've got different well, definitely, definitely different. not 14 different studios. No, no. Yeah. maybe if it was a couple <laughs> yeah. of studios. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll open the door to kind of more ex- experimental animation yeah. featuring them. Mm. Just leads to something that's... The story's there, really. Mm. That's the main thing, I think. So that was uh, Ben there chatting all things Elias autobiography with Leah Hemming, uh, Jane Davis, uh, Matt Walker and George Sander Jackson. Yes, from uh, A for Animation and Arthur Cox, respectively. Two of the many animation studios that uh, were involved in Project Chapman, as it was known in production. We have an interesting sort of supplemental piece for people who are interested in finding out more about uh, the other studios involved by uh, uh, squiggly contributor Alex Collier. This is a piece that was uh, put up September of last year. So if you search Project Chapman, on squiggly.co.uk, this should come up, where all the studios involved interview each other. You've got to admire Alex's <laughs> his organisation skills, shall we say, in putting together an interview such as that. It's pretty unique. So while I have this article in front of me, because it's a good reference, I'll list the other studios. We had uh, Made Visual, Beakus, Cake, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Not to Scale, Peep Show, Sherbet, Superfad, Treat, Tundra, Trunk, and independent director Stephen Lal. So I'm sure uh, those are familiar names to uh, a lot of the people listening. There were certain studios that I was particularly uh, fond of the ideas they came up with visually. I thought Trunk had a lovely design style mm-hmm. uh, for their segment. It was very kind of trippy, almost yellow submarine-ish, lovely use of color, you know? Yeah. I liked um, I liked uh, Beakus's the uh, the sort of uh, transparency to theirs. I think that was uh, Matthias Hogg that did that when he worked for Beakus. Aha! Um, I did like that one. That was a very very good one. Yeah, he's a, a, another very good director in his own right. From what I've seen of his stuff, I've seen I think two or three of his films. Yeah, I think he did Thursday. That was uh, the Baftas a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, uh, very little of the animation was particularly evocative of Terry Gilliam, who was essentially the Monty Python animator. Now, I would have assumed that that was a kind of deliberate instructional thing as part of keep it separate from Monty Python. But from what I gather, it was actually more that, you know, the kind of stuff people were coming up with just happened to not really resemble. I think probably it just would have seemed redundant, because if you want to see the Terry Gilliam animation, see the Terry Gilliam animation. There's certainly enough of it. I mean, not to scales sequence was a little Terry Gilliam-esque in the sense that it was kind of South Parkish, the way South Park would reference Terry Gilliam, 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like when they would have like the live action photos of heads on sort of cut out characters. Yeah. That was a little bit like what Not to Scale did. So in a kind of disjointed way, there was a little nod to Terry Gilliam in that respect. It's it's an inevitable comparison, isn't it? But, you know, luckily the animation companies that were chosen managed to produce in a, in a unique fashion, you know, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Honestly, it's worth a look in the same way I would recommend an animation anthology of short films, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a way to be inspired by different styles, by different approaches, by different interpretations of source material. It's, it's a good it's, snapshot of what's happening in animation at the moment. I would hate to think of somebody missing out on this film uh, and missing out on a snapshot, on a view of what's happening in animation at the moment. Uh, whether or not the, the end result hits that mainstream chord with a large audience, I mean, I get the impression that, you know, Ultimately, they just had to kind of bung it on DVD. It's a shame because if they'd gotten more like of a sort of longer theatrical run, maybe it would have found an audience, mm -hmm. you know? But very interesting nonetheless. A recommended watch. Yeah. We've come to the end of another smashing podcast with smashing guests. And uh, a big smashing thank you to the fantastic Bill Plimpton once again giving us the time and chatting about his prolific nature and all the new stuff he's been up to. Keep your eyes skinned for his new Simpsons animation, his new film Drunk as a Skunk, and the progress of Cheaton. Also, his restoration of the Windsor Mackay film The Flying House is coming out soon in some form or other, uh, I believe on DVD and possibly as a download. Keep your eyes on plimptoons.com for updates in that regard. Also, many thanks to the fine people who worked on A Liar's Autobiography from Arthur Cox. Matthew Walker, you can find more of his stuff at matthewwalkerswebsite.com. George Sander Jackson, georgedraws.blogspot.co.uk. From A for Animation, Leah Hemming, leah-heming.com. And Jane Davis, upstartthunder.co.uk. And you can find out more about the film itself at projectchapman3d.com. The film is now officially out on Blu-ray and DVD in the UK, so try and track it down. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us, there are numerous ways. You can email us, podcast at squiggly.co.uk. You can get in touch on the Twitter site, at squiggly, or you can search us on Tumblr, Squiggly Animation, or on good old Facebook. Just search for Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. Thanks for listening to the Squiggly Podcast. I've been Steve Henderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. And I've been Ben Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Uh, I still have a website, ben-mitchell.co.uk. Uh, throatbook.com, volume two, coming out very shortly. To all you Frenchies out there, there is a festival in Rouen coming up in March, Cine Court Anime. It goes from the 19th to the 24th. And at some point, I don't have the exact time and date yet, but my film, The Naughty List, which we discussed earlier in the podcast, will be shown as part of their uh, best of screening, which is very sweet of them. It was picked as part of their festival last year, and they've decided to show it again, which makes me feel warm and fuzzy. So thank you to the lovely people at uh, Cine Court Anime. You can check them out at animationfestival.roan.fr. Don't forget you can get in touch with us 
with all your squiggly A to Z suggestions. We look forward to receiving those. Until next time, stay healthy, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, I enjoy listening to the song Sit On My Face. That's what I'm trying to convey. Sorry, Ben, carry on. Yes. And I enjoy... So, in a way... Something for everyone. It's almost like you, you don't need to clarify that we're talking about a song. I could just simply be talking about the sheer delight I take in having someone... Every... Of their... My... While I... 28 minutes and 17 seconds in. I'm just <laughs> writing that down for the edit. <laughs> oh, I wish they'd done always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> <laughs>